Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on point on the podcast. And today, how do you feel about Ticketmaster digging into your iPhone to make sure you're vaccinated or COVID free? Is that a breach of privacy or are you willing to give that up to go back to big ticket events? We'll talk about that. We'll also talk to a guy who's breaking his silence because guess what? He was a test subject for the Pfizer COVID vaccine that we are now desperate to get our hands on. What was it like? And how does he feel now? And we'll talk to one of Canada's leading advocates for the fair and just treatment of veterans and their families. Look, we talk about honoring the dead and lest we forget. And we seem to be forgetting an awful lot of veterans who are alive today and not getting what they were promised when it comes to benefits and pensions. Let's get talking. distance from one another diminishes neither our gratitude nor the inspiration we draw from the example of these heroes we name on this day aloud or in the silence of our hearts. In Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, November 11th. Oh, those haunting sounds. And normally uh, on this day, I'm always, and I'm sure many of you attend ceremonies, but of course this year that didn't, uh, that wasn't allowed. Not for most of us. And this would have been the first year that I'd take my son. I mean, he said, I said at seven, you know, I think he's old enough to start learning the significance of this day. And I, I want him to carry it forward when our generation won't be able to, because if we don't teach them, not to forget, then who will? And I find the day sadness. I find it a very heavy day. And I think that's because most of us remember because we have our own personal connection to someone who either went away to war or did some kind of service for this country. And so I pause and remember my grandfather, Major Joe Piggott, and all those very young men. I mean, they were really boys, just barely out of school, who went into this unimaginable horror. And they didn't do it because there was a big paycheck at the end of it. They didn't get, you know, they didn't get celebrity from it. They didn't want to do it because of TikTok. They did it because their nation, and, you know, called them. Called them to sacrifice their lives to protect our freedom. And I think I say with great certainty, and not out of disrespect, but the 17-year-olds of those days had the testicles missing today. I just cannot see a 17-year-old today having that kind of 
hardness or bravery to do what those boys did back then. And we are humble about our role in the war. And I don't think we should be because our soldiers, if you've read throughout history, I mean, they were a force to be reckoned with. And I think a lot of people see us modern day as peacekeepers. I mean, we were far and are far more than more than that. I mean, during the great wars, the uh, Canadian soldiers, they were known for their grit. And I mean, they were known for toughness and their willingness to run into danger when others didn't or wouldn't or couldn't. And you look to the numbers of loss. I mean, in two wars, we lost over 100,000, mostly men, but some women. And many would come home, but there are still thousands who simply were left on the battlefield. You know, you look to France during World War One. you know, the loss at Vimy Ridge, just so enormous that eventually a permanent memorial was uh, marked as a resting place for 11,000 Canadians who were left there. I mean, six in 10 soldiers did not come home. That That is just a staggering number. And my granddad, uh, he served in World War II. He did not die. But uh, after serving six years at battle, he was shot in the throat. And it was on the last day of the war, just after peace was declared. And he never talked about the war. I mean, very few from that generation did. And he had a very gruff, gruff voice because he only had one vocal cord. And he was a deeply hardened man. He was uh, hardened by what he saw, what he experienced, the death that surrounded those young men day in, day out, and those very harsh, cold winters, the wet discomfort of mud-filled trenches, the starvation, the constant fear. I mean, it's just, we talk about it, but imagine being in it. And my, my grandfather could not stand the smell of Brussels sprouts. They were a no-no in the house because he and his squadron, they had to eat them for years, uncooked, frozen, rotten, you know, while fighting in Holland. And that is one of the few memories I have of him, was that he couldn't smell Brussels sprouts. And he didn't talk about war. He just didn't talk about it. And just before his passing, I would watch the only Remembrance Day service with him in his life. And he was silent. He was watching this in silence. Just for one moment, he looked at me and said, you'd be a kraut if it weren't for me and my friends. That is it. That is one blunt sentence. Maybe offensive to some, not the prettiest way to say it, certainly not politically correct by today's standards, but war wasn't pretty. And he was speaking his truth, because back then you could. And he'd probably say it again today, because he would have absolutely zero time for the cancel culture just ravaging us today. And I'm sure many of those guys would be disgusted by it. I'm sure he's rolled in his grave many a time because that is what he and his friends fought against. It's the very opposite of the freedoms he and his brothers fought to give us, you know, the freedom to talk, to think, to speak your truth, to debate. And here we are in 2020 tripping over ourselves to uh, censor our actual thoughts because we're just so worried we might offend. I'd love to talk to him today. And have, you know, a kind of conversation, you know, what do you think, dad? What do you think about this? And he probably just blunt again. You're idiots. That's what he'd say. You're idiots. And anything I learned about war, you know, his involvement it would be through the books or the diaries that he kept. You know, we do see the movies. We see some of the real footage to document the wars. But, you know, we, we have so much comfort today. It is just so hard to imagine what they went through day in and day out. So I have a lot of admiration for anyone who puts country first and... 
And fewer and fewer do. I mean, the ranks get thinner every year because fewer people are signing up in this country. I mean, why would you? Yes, we honor our war dead, but we have forgotten those still living with us. You know, those who have served in modern wars, maybe certainly smaller worlds, but just as dangerous. We just had troops in Mali, one of the most dangerous places on earth. And we have a duty to care for those who join our armed services. We have a duty to care for those who struggle every day with PTSD, you know, who signed up to serve for us and who have now spent decades trying to fight what is rightfully theirs, you know, things like pension or benefits or support services for mental health. And so it's not enough to just say, lest we forget. I think today we have to say shame on us for allowing multiple governments to fail these people, these vets of today. And for all those who speak ill of those who serve this country, of military, or who, you know, claim Remembrance Day just glorifies the war, I mean, remember, you can do so because of these soldiers. And so one of my favorite poems called It Was the Veteran, um, I think sums up what a lot of people today forget, and it is this. It's the veteran, not the preacher, who has given you freedom of religion. It is the veteran, not the reporter who has given you freedom of the press. It is the veteran, not the poet, who has given you freedom of speech. It is the veteran, not the protester, who's given you freedom to assemble. It is the veteran, not the lawyer, who has given you right to a fair trial. It is the veteran, not the politician, who has given you the right to vote. It is the veteran who salutes the flag, who serves under the flag, whose coffin is draped by the flag. Those are uh, important words. And so, yeah, you've got the freedom to cast judgment and criticize, hate the poppy, mock the poppy, you know, talk down to the war or our military. And just remember, it was vets who gave you the right to do that. And that's why we remember. So we'll talk about this throughout the show because I think it's remember, certainly in light of uh, the fact that we didn't have very many ceremonies, we will talk about this. Certainly we'll talk to um, a vet who has not only served this country for a long time, but now spends his life fighting to get vets the supports that they still don't have. So we'll talk about that, talk about the way it's taught. And um, we also are going to talk to a guy out in California who uh, was a part of that Pfizer human trial. Imagine that. Stood up and said, here's my arm. So we'll talk about what he went through, what it's been like, and if he has any regrets. Fascinating conversation. Well, with news of a possible vaccine coming to market, this headline kind of stuck out. Ticketmaster has uh, started work on a post-COVID framework for fan safety, and part of the plan includes the use of smartphones that they hope to scan to verify if fans are either vaccinated or if they've tested negative to COVID in a window of 72 hours. Now, I'm not the kind of person that believes vaccinations should be mandatory, but I do believe that any venue would have the right to deny entry, and there could be consequences if you don't get one. Unless, of course, you're exempt for medical reasons. But because the anti-vaxxer crowd have brought us to dangerous levels of not having enough herd immunity, I do believe in choice. But again, there could be consequences. But I do suspect Ticketmaster is probably not the only one looking at this. And the question becomes, you know, is it their right to protect safety at large at the expense of our privacy? And Kavukian is former Ontario Privacy Commissioner and also the Executive Director of Global Privacy and Security by Design. And Anne, when I read this story, I had your head and your face in my mind and I thought <laughs> this will make her head explode. It did make it explode. Okay. We're going to trust Ticketmaster with our sensitive health data? Are you kidding me? 
We're going to just assume that they're going to, of course, delete that information when it's no longer necessary and have security linked with it. Forget it. They shouldn't access any of our health data. None of our sensitive health information should reside with Ticketmaster or any of these organizations. All right. But I have to think. Uh, in this new norm, and certainly as we wait for this vaccine, whenever it comes to market, you know, arrives, that this is probably not the only big company that deals with crowd control issues that are going to be looking at putting some kind of, um, you know, um, mandate in their their in their fine print that says, look, if you want in, you got to show, you know, proof of vaccination or that you're COVID free. But this is what concerns me. People shouldn't be forced to get vaccinations, and they shouldn't be forced to demonstrate that they're COVID-free. How do you do that? How do you ensure that there are no false positives, that falsely identify some people as being COVID-positive when they're not? False positives happen all the time. And these are the concerns we have to raise now. And what I would urge people to do, first of all, I would urge federal and provincial privacy commissioners to take a look at this, to ensure that you're looking under the hood that none of this data is retained and that it is deleted securely. I understand why people will be attracted to using such kind of data, but it can't be retained and this can't be used as an opportunity to completely alienate, alienate all privacy. What should our expectations be, though? I mean, because I'm with you. I don't think anyone should have to get a a, a shot. But that does not mean um, that if you choose to go that route, that that you won't be left out of things. I mean, you could very well see this at schools where, you know, you have to show a form that you've been vaccinated. No. And oh, that concerns me so much, especially at schools. People's student personal information is increasingly being collected and used for purposes of surveillance, and it will follow them for the rest of their lives. I cannot accentuate what a huge problem this is, and I would urge parents to resist this. So we have to have some semblance of reality. I understand the COVID crisis, but it can't eradicate our privacy. And there was a letter, an open letter written by 300 epidemiologists, scientists from all around the world, saying that if we don't protect privacy in these COVID-related matters, we will relate. We will completely um, engage in a world of surveillance, which cannot be tolerated. Yeah, and, and I definitely see that concern. And then you're going to have a whole bunch of other people on the health side who say, "Look, it's in the greater good of public health that we know who's got what, uh, who's protected, so that we can make sure no one's coming in and spreading around diseases." And that that but would be, yeah. You're right, but here's the thing: it can't be an either or. It can't be public health versus privacy. It has to be public health and privacy. So we have to devise systems that embed both protections in there. And we can do this. We just have to be really upfront about retaining our, preserving our privacy. So what is then the happy balance? Because I understand from the challenge, if you are the kind of company or business that has huge crowds and that is the only way you can make money is by getting people into a very crowded space. And now you've got to worry because, you know, the insurance companies are just absolutely spiking prices to just crazy levels for bars and all these venues. What's the happy balance for them to protect themselves and also... Positive consent is essential. So if you have individuals entering into these premises, they have to understand what they're giving up. So they have to consent to the release of their personal health data to whatever organization we're talking about. And it can't be the ticket masters. It has to be some other trusted entity who is securely retaining this data and not just releasing it to 
third parties unknown in an unauthorized manner. We have to have some oversight over this. We do. But my concern is because we have been seeing levels of government at every, you know, every level dragging their feet on on response to this thing. I mean, but the bottom line is there has to be a system created. Is anybody actually working on that system and that overview as you talk about? And that's an excellent question. That's why I want privacy commissioners to step in. They should be the ones who overlook this to ensure that privacy is protected and that we look under the hood to ensure, you know, I would say trust but verify. You can't just take these entities at their word. You have to go in and look under the hood and ensure that it's taking place. I urge privacy commissioners to do so. And I have to think other uh, industries, airline industry would be another cruise ship, all these places where, you know, there's so much to risk with public gatherings at large that they're going to want to know that someone's vaccinated or someone is COVID free. um, And and so they can put in the checks and balances. But at the end of the day, uh, they can say to a customer, you don't want to tell us. You can't come in. And I agree with that. But here's the thing. You would not believe how many false positives there are, by which I mean someone is falsely identified as being COVID positive when they're not. I cannot tell you the high incidence of false positives, 81% in the UK and other jurisdictions. So please, we have to tread very carefully. When it comes so specifically to the vaccine, what should and what, you know, what should our expectations be as far as uh, the privacy? Is it enough just to say to the school board, send it into them to say, yes, we're vaccinated? Um, you know, that 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 should be. I mean, that's how we've always done it, has it not? Yes. yes, I agree. I agree. You have to trust someone and school boards should retain that and should oversee this. And should any other body then have access to that information? No. In my view, no. This is very personal, sensitive health data. It should retain, be retained by the organization collecting it full stop. Wow. It's going to be a very interesting debate moving Indeed. forward, I think, on this because, uh, you know, everyone's going to want to move on with their life and their freedoms. But again, you want your privacy. It's going to be a very fine balancing act. It'll be totally. fascinating to we, watch we it play cannot out. Have this, we cannot have this morph into a state of surveillance full stop. No kidding. All right, Anne, I had a feeling you'd have a thought or two on this. I'm glad I reached out. My pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate, appreciate it. That is Anne Kavukian. So there you go. Uh, and again, it, there's no question Ticketmaster is not the only one doing this. So we'll see how this one goes. Great to have you here on this Wednesday. So, of course, the big story this week in the medical world is this excitement over news that Pfizer a vaccination that Canada has procured could be close to market. And we've got the third round trials that show these stunning results of 90% efficacy rate. And it hasn't been fully tested. It's still got to be approved by Health Canada. But to get us this far, of course, it had to be tested on humans. And you wonder, like, who would volunteer for that? Well, my next guest did. He was one of 44,000 people who rolled up his sleeve and allowed an unknown dose of chemicals to go into his body, not once, but twice, so that people like us could possibly be saved from this hellish uh, horror known as COVID-19. His name is Steve Nunes, and he joins us now. Good to have you, Steve. Hi there. Thank you for having me. You um, posted on Facebook, you know, you went through this thing very, very quietly, and after the fact came out to say, hey, this is what I did, this is what it was like. And I think it's fascinating. Like, how did you get involved and step forward to do this? Uh, honestly, I, you know, I, I saw a thing on uh, an ad, actually. I saw an ad somewhere saying that there was going to be a study 
and uh, they were going to be testing one of the vaccines, and I wasn't really sure which one it was. Um, but I, I wanted to do something to try and help out in this whole pandemic. And so the only thing I thought of was, well, let me sign up and see if they'll take me, because you have to apply for it. And right. so I and did. What, what and what qualifications did you need? Were you COVID? Were you a COVID positive at one point? No, I was not. They, they in fact, didn't want anybody who had COVID at that point um, as part of my application. Uh, it's, it just listed, like, are you single? Are you married? Um, are, you know, are you male, female? Are you, what kind of gender are you? What, different things uh, that they wanted to just basic information, really. And then uh, yeah, your health insurance. Did you have health insurance in case something went awry? Oh, okay. It's always in the fine print that you say, hmm, maybe I shouldn't do this. But you did do this. And I and I commend anybody who, you know, puts themselves out there to, to help others. But so you decide to do this, you roll up your sleeve. Uh, what happened? Take us through it. Well, they called me and they said, hey, we're going to enjoy having you. We'd love to see, you know, all the stuff. I, can you come in on this day? And I said, sure, I'll come in. And I made sure that I filled out a bunch of paperwork, um, a lot of stuff that said, you know, hey, this might be an issue. You might have a ton of side effects. Things might be bad. You know, basically a bunch of waivers because they want to make sure that you understand the risk that we mm -hmm. don't really know what's going to happen, but we expect this to occur. Right. And yet, and so, even with purple polka dots threatening uh, your body and, and limbs falling off, you <laughs> said, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm game. <laughs> Roll up the sleeve. I was like, you know, I've always wanted a vestigial tail. Let's do this. And <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I continued on and they drew my blood and because they have to, they had to make sure that, you, you know, you didn't have COVID or anything. And then they said, okay, um, we're going to administer either a placebo or the vaccine. And my husband actually was with me. He was also in the test and mm -hmm. We both had completely different results. I had side effects. He had none. He had zero. <laughs> okay, so, so you got the vaccine and he probably got the placebo. But Correct. what was it like from the moment they put that needle in you? As soon as they injected me, it felt cold, really cold. I was like, wow, that's really cold immediately. And I felt my arm starting to, it started to hurt. And I was like, okay. And they said, okay, just stand out there. We have to watch you for 30 minutes. Okay. Make sure nothing weird happens. So I'm looking at my husband. I'm like, anything going on with you? He's like, no. It's like, my arm is freezing. And he feels my arm. And he goes, it's ice. And I'm like, wow. yeah, it's really cold. And now it's starting to hurt. I can't really lift my arm up as high. And that, that was just the first 30 minutes. I'm like, great. <laughs> it got progressively worse as it went. But it was just really sore. Um, so that that speaks that, though to the coldness because they've said that they said they have said that they had to to keep this stored at a very cold cold temperature. So that speaks to that. But then over the next twenty one days, because you have your second shot in in twenty one days, what kinds of side effects did you did you go through once the coldness and the soreness kind of goes away? Well, as soon as that went away, uh, I started to have a throbbing frontal headache, like in the, the front of my face, and it, it wasn't so bad. You're allowed to take aspirin. Like, you can take a Tylenol, take, a, take an aspirin of some sort, a pain mm -hmm. reliever, anything. But I didn't want to. I wanted to make sure I felt everything and didn't try to mask anything. So it lasted about 24 hours. 
uh, in fact, most of the symptoms, symptoms did, except for my sore arm. The sore arm really hurt for about three days. Um, after the third day, it was, it was gone. I, I was fine again. But I had a mild fever. Um, uh, I, had a, uh, I had some, uh, oh, what do you call it? Uh, I had a mild fever, and then I had uh, like a little bit of a stuffy nose, but then I was okay. It was just kind of intermittent symptoms, kind of like a flu-like symptom. But, yeah. And I had a lot of fatigue. I was very tired, really tired. And, um, and yet, and yet you went back in. You get the I'm sorry. Right. So you, you, we got a bit of a delay over top of each other. But so then you go back in uh, for the second shot and you didn't think twice about getting the second shot, even though you kind of felt crummy the first time around. That's correct. I the, the second time I felt like, you know what, I'll just do this. It, it wasn't so bad that I didn't want to come back. <laughs> so I figured this, this could be fine. Uh, I get the second shot and everything seemed OK. It was still a little cold when it went in me a second time. And then I didn't really have anything for about six to eight hours and then all of a sudden everything at once like it kind of all went through me mm. and then I had I had a mild fever I had chills and that was the new one was chills I had four hours of freezing chills I was I was cold I set the temperature uh, to 84 degrees I don't know if you guys use Celsius in Canada yeah <laughs> so it was warm it was very warm here and uh, I had seven blankets on top of me and I was freezing. I was so cold. And I had to keep, I kept laughing because I'm like, this is like the Matrix. There is no spoon. You know, this, this doesn't yeah. exist. It's not real. <laughs> it's interesting, but, uh, though. So you go through all of this. I mean, you, you are essentially vaccinated. Correct. I, 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 mean, I am. Uh, at that, this that, point. I mean, provided I got the vaccine, which we assume yes, because the other placebo was saline. So unless it was cobra venom, in which case, maybe. But. Right, right. And so now where does it go? Because, I mean, so much is riding on the results of these human tests and certainly approval in that. How, where does the research take you? Now, do you have to, to fill out more information? Uh, are they looking for any other side effects moving forward? Uh, they are, actually. I have to keep a journal. Uh, we have a medical journal that I keep, and I fill it out about once a week mm -hmm. uh, for two years. They want to keep it for two years to see if I get COVID, if I have any kind of symptoms, any kind of side effects that are occurring, but they also draw my blood. They've mm -hmm. been doing so with each visit medically, but um, now it's a little more spaced out. Like I'll, I'll come back in another six months and then a year and then in two years time and they'll draw my blood to see if any changes and whether or not I still have the antibodies in me for a lifelong immunity or whether or not we need to do this every year like a booster. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, this is, you know, a game changer in the world of vaccine to get us uh, freedom from this dreadful uh, virus. Um, you took part. Do you have any, any regrets? You know, I, I really don't have regrets with this. I, I, I recently just lost my sister. I lost family. I lost people and, and loved ones. And I, I sat there. There was nothing I could do because of the pandemic. So I, I wanted to do a piece of anything, my part. To try and make the world a better place because I don't want anyone to go through the pain I've had to go through. You know, it's everyone has suffered so much loss. It has just been such loss this year. And so I have zero regrets when it comes to this. I'm so grateful I was able to help out with medical research for this vaccine. Wow, what a story. Well, you know, we'll check back in with you. And uh, if Pfizer is the uh, the winner here, I mean, you, you 
you're part of history and, and writing the story. So Steve, I, I appreciate you joining us, sharing your adventure and your experience and kind of giving a, a, a window into a world that uh, hopefully a, a bunch of us will be able to experience once it comes to market. Definitely. Thank you so very much. Thank you. That is uh, Steve Nunes. I mean, Talk about uh, putting yourself out there. I mean, there are a lot of people that will not take a vaccine because they're terrified of it. And yet here you got a guy who's taking a possible vaccine, not even tested yet, so that the rest of us can do it. I have a lot of time for guys like that. Since we took office over the past five years, we've invested more than $10 billion in new money in supporting veterans and their families. Uh, we know there is always more to do. Uh, but we have worked significantly to uh, reduce veterans' backlogs, to reopen the nine uh, shuttered uh, offices that were closed under the previous Conservative government, uh, to be there for veterans in expanding uh, services for their families, including mental health and PTSD investments. Uh, there is always more to do, uh, but we will continue to stand by our veterans. Well, that sounds good. Uh, it's just not true. And here we are on the day that we honor our war dead, yet we have forgotten our living vets. And, you know, Justin Trudeau, he certainly isn't the first politician to break promises to living vets. They've been failed by many governments of many different stripes, and they promise to take care of vets. And then years later, thousands of them are still waiting for benefits and supports that, you know, they're not just asking for. They were promised because they signed up to serve our country. And of course, you may recall it was Mr. Trudeau who told vets back in 2018, you know, you ask for too much. And on Monday, he announced new money that would be put forward to support vets. But the reality is, great, you got $20 million to throw at vets now, but there are, are hundreds of millions of dollars that have been promised to vets over the last decade or so, and it hasn't been delivered. And there's a massive backlog that's going to take years to get through to the vets who are in need. I want to bring Sean Bruet into this conversation because he's one of Canada's leading advocates for the fair and just treatment of veterans and their families. And you also served 14 years for this country. So on a day where we honor our soldiers, I say thank you very much for your service. Thank you, Alex, for, for having me and doing this show. Well, you know, you're a living vet uh, from a different time. You weren't in the Great Wars, but you certainly were in military action. What is it like for you on a day like this? Uh, it's very complex, and I don't know a veteran, including myself, that doesn't go uh, through a sense of anguish and extremely and deeply confusing emotions about what this day means. What kinds of things? I mean, we hear about the unknown wounds of war. You know, uh, there were soldiers who came back without limbs and legs, certainly in the Great Wars. But the soldiers of today may not have come back with missing limbs, but they certainly suffered injuries that we just don't see. Well, that's right. And, and you know, those, those injuries uh, very often are downplayed by government. It's easy to downplay something you don't see. I mean, people don't go and, you know, put their brains on a wheelchair so, uh, or their brains don't get necessarily amputated. So it's really hard for people to process just how deep that suffering is. And on a day like today, Remembrance Day, um, you know, it's all about ritual. It's all about being silent. It's all about being the stalwart hero again and standing at attention when really inside there's just a flood of emotions. And once again, we're saying to those veterans, just like you're in uniform, don't feel it, don't show it, keep it all in. It's way too overwhelming for most veterans on a day like today to do that. 
Yeah, I mean, I often wonder, you know, given the stories we hear of today's uh, veterans um, and soldiers and, and the suffering that they they endure, it, it's hard to imagine what the soldiers back in the day uh, came home with because they didn't talk about it at all. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, anecdotally, we know many stories of families who talked about, you know, the, the dysfunctional households in which they grew up. Yeah. You know, the father never talked about his service in the military mm-hmm. and never mentioned where he was. And yet those behaviors, he may not have talked about it, but, you know, the, you know suppressing that emotions also meant suppressing the emotions of the house. It meant controlling the house. It meant perhaps addiction. It meant disappearing, you know, with the Legion uh, to be with the comrades to try to drown those emotions. There were just weren't proper ways of processing the emotions. And I would say even today, we suffer from the same problem. Canada is a very polite society. We don't like to show mental illness in the streets. uh, And therefore, people feel ashamed when they suffer it. Yeah, my grandfather never talked about the war. He was a very, very hardened, cold man. And I think the Scotch helped him along. But they didn't talk about it. You're right. It, it was uh, kept inside. But, you know, we know now through education and uh, and in the year 2020 that you got to talk about it. You've got to get help for mental health. We're far more accepting of it. And yet when it comes to veterans across this country, I don't know what it is about these governments. They promise and promise and never deliver. And so I watched the prime minister at this press conference, I think it was yesterday or Monday, where he's announcing money and, and saying we honor our, 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 our soldiers in one breath. And at the same time, you know, he, he can't explain, you know, with any believability um, how we're so backlogged getting supports that he himself promised out the door. Alex, you're absolutely right. You know, it's one hand that we have a tough time explaining this country, what it's like when Canadian citizens put on that uniform and when they enter a combat zone or where they go through difficult and traumatic training incidents. Um, you know, we don't explain that very well. But there's the other side of the coin, which is which is equally difficult. It's the struggle of those veterans to try to seek help. And yeah. fundamentally, fundamentally for these veterans, when they have to go and ask, when they have to beg, when they have to persist, not not only week after week or month after month, we're talking years of asking for help when they're trained not to ask for help. When they're told by government, you know, you need this piece of paperwork to get it. You need another doctor's report. And by the way, we're going to take two years to process your application. That instills a deep sense of betrayal that many veterans turn on themselves. They think it's their fault. Are they asking for too much, like Trudeau said? You know, are we really too much of a burden on the country? And and veterans will internalize and harm themselves and they'll harm their families when they're turned away. And and how how bad is the backlog at this point? I mean, if we were to finally deliver on all of the promises made, I mean, how long would that take? Well, you know, I, this the new program that's been in place. We've been going through various iterations. This this program that was you know in two thousand and five that was passed in Parliament was supposed to be the be all and end all for veterans. You know, the new Veterans Charter. Uh, I mean, it's right. taken very painful uh, edits of versions of this program. But in two thousand and six, um, you know, just before this program was put in place, there was a huge backlog, and we were promised that that backlog would be taken care of, and that backlog got grew. And each, every couple of years, the government would come in and say, we'll promise we're going to take care of that backlog. We're 14 years into backlogs, and nothing concrete or substantial has been done to change the way of doing business to help with that backlog. And there's a lot that can be done. It's almost the elephant in the room, you know, as we sit and pay honor today, and you think, you know, all you... 
boobs, you know, elected boobs, you know, you sit there and bow your head, you ought to feel a lot of shame because you have not delivered on these promises. And yet you sit here and pretend to honor these men and women. And I have to think, you know, a guy like Aaron O'Toole may be the answer to this because he is a soldier. He is a guy who has walked the walk and, and would probably do more than talk the talk. But, you know, if we don't fix this and we don't fundamentally change the way we treat those who serve our country, I would have to think it's going to be impossible to recruit in the future. And while everyone thinks we'll, we'll never need it, well, yeah, that's naive. Well, that's right. And, and you know, in the past, there was always an, uh, a population that could be vulnerable uh, to being recruited, whether it was, you know, the undereducated, the underemployed. Right. Typically, um, you know, Canadian, the Canadian government actually targeted marginalized populations because they knew they'd be the most vulnerable and they would enter the military, right? Now we have, you know, a higher educated population. We have social media that will spread around how poorly veterans are being treated. And you're right, at some point, Canadians are going to say, you know what, it's not worth it to put on that uniform because, you know, it's just a series of betrayals that will face me and my family when I try to take care of them when I'm hurt. And that is not the way we should treat people that are willing to die on our behalf. Yeah, it's um, it's astonishing in 2020 that we're still having conversations that I had 10, 15 years ago, but here we are again, where talk is cheap. And I, you know, I think a lot of Canadians, certainly most Canadians, would finally like to see some action. Sean, I very much appreciate your time on this day, and uh, we thank you and, of course, uh, your colleagues. Thank you very much, Alex, and on this very special and painful day for a lot of veterans. That is Sean Bruea, who uh, didn't just serve 14 years for this country, but has spent the rest of his life fighting to try to get his uh, colleagues, uh, you know, things that they were told they would get. That is shameful. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday live, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson. Great to have you along on point. This is Global News Radio.